Hey there, welcome to Nash Chat on this beautiful Sunday afternoon or wherever you are at whatever time it might be. Uh, we've got a few people joining us today. My name is Michael Finney. I'll be hosting Nash Chat with you. Uh, we have Soker Potoshi. Jal, you might remember him from the series. You want to say hello? Yeah, I'm here. Happy to be here. <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us. Hassan? You out there? I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Hello, hello. Hey, what's up? We have uh, Matthew Crawford, also at Edu Engineer, EDU Engineer. Hi, thanks for having me. Great. So, uh, let's start with the obvious one. I think uh, the Nash series that we did with Jal. Probably you guys have both heard that now. What was your perspective? What did you like? What didn't you like? Anybody, even Jal. Well, I mean, I could go first. I I just thought it was a great little primer for people who maybe, you know, if they wanted to catch up on what a lot of this discussion is about uh, in terms of all the stuff we're doing on Twitter, it's certainly just a great way to sort of quickly get in there and, and learn something about Nash, and at least in terms of the terms and the history and everything like that. I felt like it was a, a good start. I think that there are a lot of really um, difficult topics and that uh, we'll probably find better and better ways of talking about them. And I think that it's good to revisit some of those topics and, and seek clarity. These are not yeah, not easy topics, and, and not many people have talked about them. And, uh, and uh, I'll be honest, I, I never really thought that Nash was the best communicator. And so uh, there are some facets of it that we will probably um, want to find better words for going forward. I don't disagree with you. I think that, um, you know, as, as somebody who is fairly new, I would say, uh, comparatively to you guys studying these uh, ideas that Nash put forward, there is definitely a language hurdle to get over. There's some mental hurdles to get over in general. Uh, I think that once you start to explore what he's saying in terms of game theory and economics and the mathematics behind those things, it it seems really evident, though. You know, it seems like a very um, obvious recognition of the mechanics of people inter interfacing with each other. I, I enjoy doing it. I appreciate your help on it. Um, one of the things, and this sort of goes along the lines of what you guys are saying, there wasn't a defined audience for it, and and it became really difficult to compartmentalize enough and to not skip over things that are necessary for the argument, but um, you, you know, to not get lost in some of the details and still get you know sort of traverse the summary of the whole argument. Um, so I think. With different scopes or different audiences, a lot of different content will, will come out. 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Over 125 years ago, the Columbian Exposition was staged in Chicago on Lake Michigan's shoreline. Visitors from around the country and world were first introduced to many industrial technologies and commercial offerings that would shape 20th century culture. This book explores a collection of event photographs and juxtaposes them against a set of modern images to catalog the living remnants in art and architecture around the city as a legacy to the 1893 World's Fair. 
1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Now available from Amazon. Audiobook version available soon. I agree. Yeah, very much. And just to say hi to the people that have joined us on Periscope today, I know there's a handful of people that um, always kind of hang out with us on Twitter and, and, and gravitate around some of these discussions. So I just want to shout out to Tim and Christy and Paul, and we got Coinyeezys hanging out and Will. Those are some of the names I see on here that I'm familiar with. And of course, uh, for those of you on the broadcast, you can hop onto Periscope and engage there as well if you so choose. So let's continue on. What do you guys think is maybe the most important aspect of Nash's work? Maybe the, the, the most fundamental thing that people should try to really wrap their head around. Oh boy. Can I take that one? (laughs) Floor's open. Okay. Um, I think one of the the real important things that Nash was uh, trying to get at was that ultimately people become irrational about money. And this can fuel financial bubbles like what we saw in 2008. And the reason why it's this way is because oftentimes we don't have the proper metrics to measure something, you know, things like irrationality and things like that. And that's why John Nash brought in this concept of the ICPI, um, which in a way um, sort of measures the real sector of the economy. And um, when the real sector of the economy is measured and we have a metric based on that, we can begin to look at things more rationally. Because what happens when money decouples from reality? When finance, you know, soon follows. And when finance follows, then all the institutions around finance begin to follow too. And so, you know, think about it. Education, um, religion, philosophy. Um, You can just go on and on and on. Um, Just as money decouples itself from reality and finance decouples itself from the real sector, things are sort of divorced from reality all around you. And that was sort of the argument that Nash was getting at, is that we need to come to some rationality in terms of money. And that was really the basis of ideal money, in my opinion. I I have a different perspective on this. Um, I'd like to go back to uh, something that uh, Jao brought up in in one of the previous discussions, uh, which is the trip paradox. In fact, one of my friends earlier today in a chat said um, he, he had trouble wrapping his mind around what the trip and paradox is. And so I think, uh, you know, should I go ahead and, and like redefine, you know, what is the trip and paradox? Of course. Absolutely. Okay. This, this is one of the major hurdles once a reserve currency enters the system. And yeah, after world war two, the U S was in the dominant economic position and, uh, yeah, with the Bretton Woods Accord, uh, with the Bretton Woods system, um, we basically started buying all the world's goods and spreading our dollar around, and our dollar could be used as the world's reserve currency to do things like, you know, buy and sell, you know, large, uh, large amounts of commodities, oil, and things like that between nations. And uh, the Triffin paradox uh, basically says that there's a, a big tension. Uh, in terms of people's um, incentives and priorities, what their interests are. Uh, 
basically the you know it's the difference between being the na- uh, the nation that issues the currency, which might otherwise use it almost entirely in its own bubble, and and the nation taking on that currency. And I think that um, you know if we've created if we've created a world with that system, one of the things that we have to understand is that at some point that system uh, could be unwound. It could be violently unwound, and I think that that's part of what. Um, freaked Nash out uh, when he realized what part of what made him um, scamper from the U.S. and try to trade all his dollars for Swiss francs. But basically, yes. you know, what, what all these other nations want the dollar for is different than what we want to do with it. And uh, that inherent friction, you know, it, it presents a problem. It keeps money from being as ideal as we would like it to be. Yeah, that's the tripping dilemma. Yeah, that's always that gets a lot of people nervous even today. Um, there are a lot of economists that are discussing that issue actually. Um, I think that gets and it people can be quite nervous in Bitcoin even to this day. You hear people talking about, well, you know, what are people doing with it? And in and in many cases, you know, people are they are transmitting money value, right? But the information layer of what Bitcoin is and kind of what it what it can do when we start to look at that. Um, has a whole other value set, and I'm not necessarily sure that we're we're properly putting a, a a dollar amount or a Bitcoin amount even on the value of what Bitcoin does. Well, it gets back to being rational about money, right? And it's difficult to be rational when you don't have real metrics out there to to properly measure um, that. That was one of the problems we had with the financial bubble. You know, it, it, it just seemed like it was getting to be irrational, but um, there wasn't much anybody really could do about it. So, um, and that that seemed one of the core, you know, central premises of, of what John Nash was getting at when he was talking about ideal money. He was a mathematician, first and foremost, you know, he was not an economist. And um, I think a lot of people don't value metrics as much as mathematicians do. Um, But if you think about metrics, just in their simple terms of being able to accurately measure certain things, it has an astronomical benefit. And it gets mathematicians excited. It doesn't necessarily get everyone else excited, I guess. But uh, I guess that's a little unfortunate. Yeah, even though... um... Even though Nash wasn't uh, initially an economist, uh, I, I, yeah, economists uh, they they love metrics. But I think the the advantage that Nash had was um, yeah, he was really you know one of the you know maybe maybe the five great uh, analytical minds of the 20th century, and he had an ability to see so many angles of a problem. And I think he saw you know, uh, aspects incompleteness of Keynesian theory. Uh, but yeah, you know, aspects of the situation, you know, the, the problems that would occur um, with the reserve currency system, with the dollar and the reserve, reserve currency system, he saw it before other people did. He was able to see those different angles. Um, but you, uh, Hassan, you brought up um, the 2008, 2007-2008 uh, uh, mortgage bond collapse, yeah, and I yeah, think totally. that that's actually you know one of the good ways to explain. Um, what the problem with our money system is. And I'd like to take that one for just a moment because you referred to it as being irrational. And I think that, um, you know, we, we have sort of, uh, well, Nash did, Nash did. I'm, I, I, and I, I agree, (laughs) I guess, but go ahead. Yeah. You know, most of what happens in economics, um, you know, happens because somebody does think that an action is rational, and I think that uh, that it's important to try to see through, like, why would somebody see this 
as rational or irrational. And I think this relates, uh, you know, relates to why, um, you know, Bitcoin may become uh, a system that people might flee to uh, after a little while. Um, it, it, in the 90s, uh, we created this system where the Fed was giving basically free insurance on top of a mortgage bond. You know, basically um, somebody like Fannie Mae might, might collect up these, these mortgages, you know, buying them from the market and then wrap them up and securitize them. But they were getting something free on top well who pays for that free thing well ultimately you know the fed was kind of in a sense issuing money that people didn't know was there and then at some point the bill came due and when the bill came due the system came crashing down and i think that uh people need to understand you know when there are pieces of value that are there and when they might go away and if, for instance, um, it's almost sure that a certain amount of global trade is probably very soon going to begin to disappear, especially with the U.S. becoming energy independent. And what that means is that a lot of that reserve currency out there will start to you know, take on a different value and a diff- different significance. And uh, and this is really what the Trippin Paradox is about. At some point, um, you know, those tensions have to resolve in some way. And as they resolve, hopefully, you know, Bitcoin or uh, some combination of Bitcoin, gold, and other solutions uh, can take the place of, of more of the world's reserves. The, the, the way I describe the Triffin Dilemma, and I'm fine with how we've talked about it, I try and summarize it sort of with the, uh, you know, someone who doesn't really know about economics. And, and the idea is that, it creates um, there's a conflict between serving the world with the reserve currency and then trying to have your own domestic policies. So you, you want to do something that benefits yourself locally, but then you have to think about well, how does that affect um, everyone else who holds our currency? Yeah, that's that's it's a great way to put it, Jal. And, and both of you are, you know, you're getting right at the heart of, you know, what a lot of the problems were, especially in 2008. No doubt about it. Um, so let me ask you, is, guys, how do you think the narrative has evolved since 2008 regarding the metrics and ideas that Nash is putting forward in his work since then? Do you see it? being better appreciated do you see it as um you know emerging uh, as a result um you know you tell you tell us in, in your perspectives Ooh, i i have a few things to say on this one um i think unfortunately because of the way um i think that we were sold a, a false narrative as to what happened during the 2007 eight collapse in the media and uh, people were sold first I think the false narrative was, oh, the, the quant screwed up on Wall Street. Though um, you know, I was trading bonds in the late '90s for one of the large hedge funds, and uh, I mean, it, yeah, there were definitely discussions happening already in the '90s about, you know, the, this is not going to end well. Um, uh, and I, I think that various people understood certain aspects of it, various people didn't. But um, it, it's just not true that. That it was an entirely, um, yeah, an entirely unexpected crisis. Um, 
and I think that because of the way that narrative was sold, I think people aren't doing much to look for a story and look for understanding. I think it's still the case that uh, you know almost nobody understands the Triffin paradox, and I think that it's still the case that people don't understand what leverage in the financial system means. And the Triffin paradox is a lot about leverage because all this printing of money that goes around the world, it puts everybody on the same graph of money. And now we can do the same thing that we did with mortgage bonds, which is spread a toxic asset, which is not as uh, worth as much as, as yeah, it shouldn't be considered as worth as much as it's being traded for. And now we have, you know, not only CDOs like that, but CLOs, uh, collateralized uh, loan obligations for cars or, or corporate debt or anything like that. Personal debt uh, can be, uh, you know, wrapped up into uh, instruments and sold around the world. And, uh, and then we have all the different various kinds of swaps, uh, swap agreements. And anytime any one piece of that is mispriced because we're not looking at uh, the value of money in the system correctly, um, there's the chance that because of all these interrelationships and swap agreements that, that one piece of the system collapsing uh, poisons another piece, which then collapses and then another piece. And as it is that uh, we begin to unwind the reserve currency status of the dollar in the future, um, it, there's almost no way to stop some of that from happening. Now, when we so we can we can say that in hindsight, and if we think we have some form of solution that might exist in the future or now, but didn't ex- exist then. Like I always caution it, it's almost a narrative to look back on it and say it was wrong or it was irrational or it was toxic because it might have been the best thing we had at the time. But I, I think part of the word we moved to. We got a, we I, got I think a part of the comment also in the Periscope chat uh, from Polly saying that the, the confusion is there uh, intentionally in some cases because the confusion is an attack, uh, is an arbitrage. Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, it's definitely an arbitrage. The moment that free piece of insurance is attached to, you know, like packaged up mortgages and sold as a bond, the person who packaged it up and then sold it could sell it with that piece attached and get extra value out of it. And so they've made a profit just by creating the bond. And then they have an incentive to go out and get as many of those mortgages as possible. That means that the people who are selling them those mortgages, maybe banks making loans, have an incentive to create as many new mortgages as possible. And so there's a positive feedback loop in the entire system. Now, when we get to the word toxic, that's I think that that mostly describes the point at which um, you know, say these large financial institutions, you know, big investment banks, you know, hold a bunch of these bonds. They're looking for homes for them, especially as the positive feedback loop begins to end. Mm-hmm. And they wound up, you know, uh, going out and selling like community banks very hard on buying some of these bonds. And that's the point at which it was toxic. It was like, uh, you know, an endpoint of, you know, handing off the hot potato to people who, you know, weren't savvy enough to get it yet. Right. It sounds like they're kind of playing hot potato while also playing musical chairs. Yeah. So, you know, I pretty much agree with Matthew, you know, that, that there's a lot of scapegoating that goes on. And, um, you know, in 87, it was computer trading that had just sort of, uh, you know, gotten onto, you know, gotten onto the street and it was a new thing. And they, you know, they blamed it on that. And we had a few sort of flash crashes and other stuff like that a little later that they blamed on day traders. I mean, they're always scapegoating something, 
But the real problem is, is that the incentive, as, as he's saying, the incentive is to carry on with this irrational behavior. And without, a, you know, a real metric and an apolitical metric, that's the most important part of, of Nash's um, ideal money, as far as I'm concerned, that enables people to see more clearly when these type of events happen. Um, and not only that, but they have to compete against it. See, it's not just a metric in itself. You know, they have to compete against it. So, like, you know, central banks can't just have easy money policies under ideal money because, you know, they ultimately have to compete with the asymptote of, of, of money, right, which is what Nash is talking about in the end. So they have to compete with ideal money. And um, that's the important part is, you know, ultimately we can go back and, and argue, you know, left and right. There are so many things you could, you could go. I, I mean, I've analyzed 2008 over and over and over again. And there are so many places where you can see things go went just terribly wrong. But that really isn't the issue, right? The real issue was is that ultimately in the end, you know, when we become irrational about money, you know, Everything decouples from, you know, once finance decouples from reality, then you also, you know, politics is next. And when politics is next, you know, religion is next. When religion is, you know, education is next. And it just goes on and on and on. And you're seeing, and this is really something I wish I could emphasize to people and really get this. The madness you're seeing around you everywhere seems to me, and this seems to be central to the point that Nash was trying to get at, seems to be attributed to our money. And I know that's so hard for people to get that, but, you know, that is ultimately in the fundamental unit of account of our matrix, his money, right, of this matrix, of this simulation, whatever you want to call it. And and the, the problem is Nash, you know, he kind of came in, and, you know, this is my opinion, he came in sort of on the heels of the crisis. And it was still a little bit early. And Nash was talking about inflation, which, you know, that's a typical thing. And that, that's, that wouldn't have been an unusual thing to have done back then. But what he didn't realize, I think, is that central banks were going to be fighting for the next few years up until now, from like 2011 until now, they've been fighting deflation. Right or disinflation or stagflation or whatever ways that economists want to reframe that term, it's still a deflationary propensity that they've been trying, a deflationary trend that, that they've been trying to eliminate. But the interesting thing is, you know, even though Nash didn't use the terminology, ideal money is still applicable even in the instance of deflation too. And that, that's another topic perhaps for another day. Um, but yeah, I think Nash didn't get the traction he deserved to answer your question, um, simply because the terms he were he was using at the time maybe didn't express what he was trying to say um, well enough, or maybe they weren't appropriate for the community uh, that he was addressing, given the topic of his work. This is probably uh, this is a good point, Matthew. Yeah, I agree. It, when we when we use the terms inflation and deflation, we have to be careful to be clear about the definitions we mean because it's it's hardly ever obvious. Right, and that's something that you know you and I have talked a little bit about um, in advance yeah, of the series it, that we did. That's right. That's right. It was it was a very important point. So here's something that I've kind of 
maybe had a little bit of a realization about regarding the language of the phrase ideal money, right? So when we think of an ideal, it's, it's, um, it's, it's an idea, right? That emerges from our mind. It exists as an abstraction. And a lot of what I think he's talking about in the Nash equilibrium within the context of ideal money and, uh, talking about how bottoms up sort of economics and top down economics meet in this middle. And, and that is the Nash equilibrium in, in a sense, right? Where we're hitting these bottlenecks of information trading in two different directions. And, uh, and it's the pursuit of finding a, a good fit, making it match between people that are providing and people that are looking to consume, I suppose. Yeah, uh, inflation. Um, yeah, controlled inflation is is usually an attempt to meet that, uh, and, and that's part of what the where the Trippin paradox comes in is that you have um, a different uh, you know uh, pressure on the supply and demand, and it may be that when those things move, there is no Nash equilibrium anymore. You know, once um, you know once you uh, you know enter an era where the system cannot reach equilibrium uh you might have something that is uh, kind of like a bank run uh like for instance uh, so at some point in the future nations uh, that no longer use the dollar as the reserve currency if things change uh from the current status you know may just start dumping dollars into the market at which point uh there's a period of time at which you know there's not even a stable value for the dollar so I think um, the yeah. equilibrium or the de uh the instability that occurs is time-based, right? So it, it always, it, it kind of moves back and forth between those two um, conditions where things are unstable and then it flows back the other way and we find equilibrium and then somebody discovers an opportunity or perhaps, a, you know, as Jal mentioned before, uh, a new cheaper energy source and all of a sudden we have to refine the equilibrium. See, when we say stability, it's very unclear what each of you mean. Sure. Well, we so I, you could define it and expand on it. Okay. So yeah. Equilib go ahead. Yeah. You go. You go ahead. Yeah. Equilibria uh, is always a, a tough subject to talk about. Um, you know, to me, it just means that uh, that uh, whatever players are playing in the game. Uh, the way that they play isn't changing substantially, um, and of course that that's subjective, but isn't changing substantially over uh, you know near to medium term time interval. So to me, stability is the sliver of time in which the parties agree to an arrangement. There was enough. There was enough equilibrium. There was enough stability for them to make the bargain. Or, or for the bargain to be, you know, it, it's it's obviously rational for both. Like, you know, mm -hmm. if you were an outside party and you could just see what the computations were, you know, you would you would basically know at least within a range, uh, approximately what was going to happen between those parties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes. So, sense. You know, Minsky, Minsky had an art. This was sort of his dialectic. He was a rather famous economist too, and. And he, he sort of saw, saw that we had these periods, but he defined stability in terms of risk. And so risk is basically, stability would be a period where there's relatively low risk. And what happens eventually is that once you have 
these long periods of low risk, people start to get ambitious again, so they start taking risks again, right? And one of the things I, you know, I think is missing from the from um, equilibrium that could probably, you know, make things a little more clear for people is that it's ultimately a risk management system in the sense that if you know you and I have a goal we want to achieve right we want to set out to do we we want to make up a game engage in a game to help us achieve that goal and um, we're going to take risks and so you and I are going to work together to manage those risks and that's what you know bitcoin is essentially is a risk sharing cooperative where you build a network and thousands of people all get together and manage the risk from the miners to the users, you know, to the guys who have nodes, um, whatever. They're taking on risk okay, so, and managing it together. So um, go ahead. Well, I agree with you that there, there definitely is that aspect. So would you say that it's also, in a sense, a reward management platform? Because when we think about... Yeah, oh, sure, sure. You could define that. Absolutely. You can define it that way if you like. Yeah. Right, because when we think about value in, in terms of, of bargaining with each other, I'm not thinking necessarily like how much risk I'm reducing by having an object, perhaps, depending mm -hmm. on the object, um, as yeah. much as, say, like... I'm explicitly getting this tangible or emotional reward, you know, that, that I, that I perceive and I assign a value to. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, that, there's always that argument, right? You could, you can, with risk, you can always look to, um, uh, you could say, well, should we say it's a risk sharing process or can we say it's a, a you know, an equity based process? We share in the equity, you know, is it equity sharing? Um, I, there are a lot of a lot of different ways you, you can word that and reframe it. The question is, does the reframe actually add value? Um, yeah, I think in this case, probably calling it a reward, you know, a reward system does add value. So it's um, connotation, right? Yeah. The semantics, you know, um, however you want to call it. But, you know, ultimately, I think, Nash, you know, you, you asked about the term ideal, and um, it it's not, it is in a way, Nash, it's kind of an extended idea here. Yes, it is in a way ideal in the sense of what we think of, like, the ideal person. I think a lot of times we imagine the ideal person, or we when we think of ideal, or maybe things like the Holy Grail, you know, we think of those as ideal, and we think of them as things that are unrealistic, um, or just you know cannot happen. So when they see the term ideal money, I think a lot of people just reject it right there. And and I often see this on Twitter. I think Jal can agree with me on this: is that that's like usually the first thing you have to when someone is first learning about Nash is you have to get them over this idea that it's, it's more of a mathematical term uh, in terms of an ideal. And specifically he was talking about asymptotically ideal things. And that, that's a whole different topic in itself. Um, but this gets into the whole idea again, like you said, of terminology, you know, how do we word these things? And I think ultimately that is the diff the most difficult part about Nash is that the words just weren't quite there. I don't know, Jal, you could add to this more than I, I'm sure. Well, it's it's not something we necessarily particularly agree on. Um, now, see, I think we could go back to the idea that there was the housing mortgage crisis. Maybe people were acting rationally. Um, 
and then there's the Triffin dilemma. So there's there's a, there's a problem there. As a group, we see a problem. And so what is the solution? We want to move away from the possibility of a country suffering or having to deal with the Triffin dilemma. And so where would we move to? And I think that's very related to um, what is meant by ideal and asymptotically ideal. Yeah, actually, I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to side uh, generally with Jal here in the sense that um, I don't think that there is like a, uh, I don't think Nash really meant for there to be a perfectly laid down definition of ideal. I, I really think he was just saying, you know, there is, you know, a more utopian form of money that we could asymptotically approach. It's kind of like having a personal idea. You're never going to be a perfect person, but you would approach it. Now he did specifically talk about the Triffin paradox and he specifically talked about the problems of inflation. And every time you have inflation, it's sort of like a little ripple in the waves of all the tension that are uh, wound up in the Triffin paradox. And so that was most of what he focused on was that relationship. Uh, but it is also true, I think, that uh, that within the Bitcoin sphere, we have also discussed other facets of relationships between money um, that uh, that Bitcoin might solve that that Nash wasn't even talking about because it wasn't really, you know, uh, present as part of the um, as part of that momentary insight about the failures of Keynesian economics that he saw. Now, um, I I don't see you guys have both said, and I think Jal would agree, or I agree with Jal this. I don't, I don't, I I believe he was very explicit in his definition of ideal money. So I think he was very explicit, and I don't recall him talking about the Triffin dilemma. So he did. I he there is a mention of it, isn't it? In in ideal money, I can't remember. I have to go look it up. There's a, I, there's a mention on the wiki, but it it wasn't a quote. Yeah, maybe I should uh, look back and and you know, read exactly what he said about ideal money. When I when I read his papers, I didn't feel like I was getting a definition in the same way that I would get a definition about you know right. uh, what it means to deform a sphere in mathematics. Um, I I felt like the concept was left open ended and. In, even to the extent that it wasn't, um, I do think that we are actually exploring additional qualities of money uh, within the cryptocurrency mm-hmm. universe. Okay, and those I'd, like are to, I'd like to jump on conversation. there. Uh, so with what you're saying in terms of what we're exploring in regards to the nature of money with cryptocurrency, is Bitcoin money? Is cryptocurrency money or is it something that comes after what we think of money or is it something akin to a combination of what we've historically called money and the ideas that are getting explored via information theory and physics yeah so you know the other day to answer your question real quickly um or try to the other day i was just sitting in public and a guy sits down next to me on the bench and he's real fidgety and nervous, and he's getting me fidgety and nervous because I don't know what's wrong with this guy, you know. And he just looks at me, and he's just like, I don't know what to do with my hands. And I'm like, well, well what's the problem? And he's like, you know, I left my cell phone at home. And my wife won't give me a cell phone, and I have nothing to do with my hands, you know. And, and when I, you know, I looked at that, and I realized just exactly what's happened here today that many people may not be seeing is that data has become a commodity, oh, absolutely. you know, almost, almost in the sense of food and water for a lot of people. Absolutely. And when, 
And when data, when data becomes a commodity, you, you know, you need metrics, you need unit of accounts, you need medium of exchanges, all these things for that particular economy. Now look at, you know, we all agree that Nash painted some pretty broad strokes. Okay, and he was specific in some areas and maybe not so specific in others. You know, he was in his later years. But I think, you know, he looked at game theory and he looked at the trade equilibriums and he played all this out and he saw something like ideal money starting to emerge and he just wanted to get people ready and used to the idea. So, you know, even Isipi is kind of like, well, maybe we'll, We'll, uh, we'll, we'll do, it'll be something like that. Well, something like that has emerged where we've got this new commodity on the field. It's called data. And not only is that, what we need metrics for this new data. We, we need to know where it's moving. We don't really have that. We're still using fourth, third industrial revolution, and we have just started into the fourth industrial revolution, and economists are still gauging all sorts of other things and not necessarily how money is moving back and forth because of software or what are the effects of having the 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 money on the internet essentially be a credit card which is just ridiculous in my opinion there's right. just i agree with so, you many hold, the so many holes so many the industrial the, the the transition between the phrase industrial revolution and where we're at now which could be yeah. the information age uh, the information exactly. revolution. And I'm not even really sure that those are great terms to use, but the analogy of comparing information currently, the way that we looked at oil in the past is spot on, absolutely dead on. Can I absolutely. try to describe this differently? I don't think it, it's it's actually uh, contradictory to, in any way to what Hassan says, but maybe it goes in parallel. Well, can I extend that to say that I don't think we've contradicted each other yet? I think we think we have, but we haven't, especially when it comes to um, – Oh, well, I just wanted to jump in about money. Yeah, but go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But. Oh, no, no, that's all right. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I think that we can do – and when I – began to understand what Bitcoin was, I did was I went back and, and, you know, read up about money, you know, which seems like such a, a very basic, simple concept. But the way I would have described it after, you know, rereading and rethinking about Bitcoin that I would have pre-Bitcoin is that now I think of money primarily as a graph and a ledger and, you know, and a protocol. Um, and, you know, thinking of money in terms of a protocol, well, it might be that you could have always defined it that way but we didn't yet have much reason to. It might be that we could have always thought about data as being part of the graph and and, and recognize it's important to the graph, but we didn't really need to well, yet. Maybe right? we didn't so, have the mechanisms to yet. Well, I, I think we had the mechanisms to at least describe it that way. I mean, you know, uh, we had data going back down spheres the moment we could, you know, write and record anything. You know, there, there's data. But I think that it was it was never so much like part of the economy beyond what we could keep track of, you know, right. uh, so, humans counting on their fingers or simple ledgers. Right, exactly. So the, what I'm speaking to is in terms of capability isn't that we didn't have the information layer. It's that we didn't have the computational uh, capacity uh, to process the amounts of information emerging within the amount of time when it would be valuable, Right. Um, yeah, and there weren't you know, the economic incentives to you know put it all together conceptually, but I still I still think we can we can just call it money. I, I think that we're really we're more expanding what the definition of money always should have included. We just didn't add those words there because they weren't yet part of 
um, our conceived value of what we were doing with it at the time. So the industrial revolution becomes the information slash money revolution. Right. But I mean, you know, let's talk about what that means, right? Um, <laughs> if, if, <laughs> you know, essentially if we look at the the broad strokes nash was was trying to make we can look at you know he was the sippy specifically was to reflect industrial consumption right so it was an industrial consumption price index so we're looking at real sector stuff so crypto the more and more it becomes a unit where people measure value on the internet right once it be, once it literally, which I think it will, literally becomes the unit of, of of exchange to on the internet, it will reflect exactly that. It will reflect a commodity, and that commodity will be data. And when data emerges as a real sector kind of thing, um, it will be ultimately, I think, probably pretty similar to ideal money. Now, how will that emerge? Will it be Bitcoin? Will it be some other crypto? I don't know. What we can see is that right now Bitcoin is sort of emerging as a reserve currency and is kind of acting as sort of like ideal money for the rest of the, these other alts in the sense that, you know, it, it, they get rid of the alts that aren't very effective and, and um, the ones that hang around and survive um, and are able to compete with Bitcoin um, are probably going to be doing pretty good. So Right. I think that there's going to be perhaps um, a few bridges in probably Bitcoin being the, the primary one to go between the, the physical real world economy in meat space and the digital internet economy that exists on the web and in mobile apps and inside of walled gardens. I mean, Facebook is talking about launching a coin. Are they going to allow every coin within their ecosystem? Of course not. They're going to use the one that benefits them the most, I would assume. And it's probably not going to be Bitcoin, uh, even if they do allow that to have some exposure to their network. The thinking I'm trying to get at here is to say that let's look at what's happening in the Bitcoin SV community, specifically uh, with a, a topic that I covered earlier this week, Bitstagram. And when we think about money, like I don't think anybody really has a problem spending dollars on the internet. I mean, it's there are obviously use cases where people get banned from certain platforms or they did something at one point in time that allows them to not get access to a platform or whatever. Those things happen. I'm not debating that. My point here is to say that I don't have a problem spending dollars on Amazon or on other services such as uh, Netflix or Legos even. But, but it's, not, it's not an economy yet, right? Yeah, I can, I can send money to Amazon, but can I, can I tip you for this uh, thing? Yeah, no, I, I could. I it's agree a, with that point, and, and that's, what, that's where it's I'm not like It's not like we're, if, if you and I are walking along the street, which is what an economy is, like you're in the marketplace, you can go in and like, hey, I just met you, you're cool, and, and I'd like to buy your product. It's not like that. It isn't like you know, that. It's not. It isn't. Yeah. It totally isn't like that. So what happens and on the crypto side? As that possibility, it depends on, you know, if they meet all the different um, uh, standards for it. But well, it's about the information yeah. side, right? Like what opportunities or yeah. what functionality does this cryptocurrency light up for me within the ecosystem or the economy that I want to participate in on the web or within this set of apps? Right, right. That's kind of how I'm and, seeing and you it. May 
And you may have different feelings. You know, this is the thing that I do not like about the crypto community. It's so it's such team oriented that that you can't see literally can't see forests for the trees. You know, but, you know because Bitcoin. You know, Ethereum is has always been whatever it is going to be, right? But you know, Ethereum could do all the things that it tries to do because there's Bitcoin. You know, if there wasn't Bitcoin, that wouldn't happen. And people are doing, you know, all these people who have these, you know, like Tron, Tron, you know, Tron can maybe take a little risk, maybe in terms of, you know, increasing um, its attack surface a little bit. And you and people will still be willing to go in and deal with that. Why? Because there's Bitcoin. They can get back into Bitcoin, you know. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Bitcoin in terms of just like a, a real stable sort of pillar around which these systems can evolve, we could have enormously complex systems. And I don't care what you say about Facebook coin. Let's just see them contend with Bitcoin first. They're going to have to fight. I don't they disagree get with you. The, so the the issue I think that what we see emerging is that functionality is going to be tied to specific coins because they're not going to want to allow a Bitcoin into their into their ecosystem into their economy. Oh, going, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely correct. Control, yeah. you know. But they're not going to be able to to have those systems without Bitcoin. I, I, and, I agree and, with you. Yeah, yeah. It is it is that bridge, um, and it's. I think what what we find is that like there is the macroeconomic discussion of settlement. Then there's the uh, very like street level discussion about cash. There is the the technical discussion around an, an information theory based discussion around Bitcoin and the internet and how it's used to transact and what other things we can build on that, that, that protocol. So there's a lot of different dialogues that you have to kind of uh, silo, I think. Yeah. The conversation you two are having um, uh, makes me think about Gresham's law again. And uh, this might be a good time to, to bring this up for listeners because we can relate this. I, I think that um, the cryptocurrency world is kind of like a fractal branch of the larger monetary tree at the moment. You know, Bitcoin is not a reserve currency in the sense that it's a shelling point, a, a natural place to, you know, for nations to put large amounts of stored wealth at the moment. Um, but it is acting uh, as a reserve currency within the little branch of cryptocurrency that has broken Absolutely. off and is experimenting. Um, and, uh, you know, one, one way that we might think of that is, you know, look, the dollar's been out there as a reserve currency. And, you know, what have other nations been doing, you know, since, for instance, 2008, uh, you know, some of the nations like China have been, you know, uh, clamoring for some other type of reserve currency system except you know whatever experiments people come up with it gets shot down quickly or it just doesn't work you know special drawing rights is a basket of the dollar and the euro and this and that but really the fate of the euro is so tied to the fate of the dollar already because of the Bretton Woods system that it's just kind of meaningless to go down those paths um, or, or, or perhaps mostly meaningless uh, one way or another um, you have this you know uh, this dominant thing that everybody defaults to um, and that's that's kind of like Gresham's law in the sense that you have two options so you take one that has a property that the other one doesn't I like that line of thinking in general um, yeah. because then it means that uh, uh, like the different chains of Bitcoin 
you know, you can basically build up monies that meet particular needs. They provide particular services within a set of conditions and they are uh, locally applicable, much the way fiat has been. Yeah, and real quickly for anybody listening, since I, since nobody actually said what Gresham's Law is, uh, Gresham's Law is bad money drives out good. And I know there are some people on the internet who go, well, the definition includes that you have a legal obligation to take either. Uh, really, this has been around for you know at least 2,500 years since Aristophanes, and, and I would wager money probably further back in some point in the history of China. Um, and you probably didn't really have that part attached. It's just the supply and demand forces. If you have two currencies and one of them has a property, the other one doesn't, people are going to you know, look to that property as a decision mechanism for always choosing. Right. When we so, say money, so, maybe we think about a ledger system for documenting credit and payments, you know, and that's enough. When you, when you, when you give that definition, you haven't explained what is good money and bad money in Gresham's sense. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, good money would just be the one that has the extra property, and uh, bad money is the one that doesn't have that extra valuable property. And historically, yeah, I think uh, uh, Lord Gresham, that the law was named after, uh, if I remember the story correctly, um, he was working for a royal uh, who uh, rebased the amount of different metals that went into making a coin, and because the new metals were cheaper people who had the choice between spending one of the old coins with the more valuable metals and one of the new coins would spend the new coin with the less valuable metal and hoard the old coin with the more valuable metal it's, and so it, it's uh, often right. it's often said hoard but it went abroad uh, 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 yeah I, I guess the point is that that if they had the choice between using one to store value and one to to exchange value they would uh, get rid of the one that had the you know, that did not have the additional property and my thought is something like you know uh, Facebook coin you know, it, well, you, said, has, get, you said get rid of but I, I don't I don't mean just like make it disappear exchange it for something as opposed to exchanging the better coin for something. Right, because yeah. So what happened was the fiat stayed local, and then the commodity money is sort of what we're talking about went abroad. Um, now, in that con in that definition, isn't Bitcoin bad money? Well, I, I guess it's always compared to what you know. If it has a property that some other money doesn't have, but is otherwise uh, yeah identical, then yeah. It, you know, we need to discuss the property. All right, you know, what comparison are you looking at? So when, when Satoshi was talking about um, how Bitcoin might become, somebody asked about Mises regression theorem, which is the idea that the best, like a, the, the best suited commodity for money would arise. And Satoshi explained, well, think of it like this. Think of something like gold, but instead it's dull, it's boring, and it's not useful for anything. Um, he said, "In a world with with uh, sort of no other choices or, or nothing better, I think it would still be picked up as money." I'm not understanding the point. Do you think you could try to rephrase it? The Satoshi's example was Bitcoin might become money because it doesn't have another use case. Okay, um, and everything else like paper money would have a use case. At least you could use it to, I don't know, 
uh, wipe with her. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I, I guess um, yeah. At this point, we're using we're already using you know uh, ones and zeros in computers to store a lot of money. You know, a lot of dollars don't even exist outside of computer systems. Um, uh, and I would argue technologically that Bitcoin has already been proven to um, drive other activity besides the the functionality of money. The, the that it does not speak to Gresham's point or commodity money. I'm not see some I'm some people like some people some people what they want to say they want to say one of Bitcoin's use cases like a non money use cases like a store of value, but that that's not a non monetary use case. Oh, I'm totally Bitcoin is what I'm talking about. Yeah, it, it's. I, th I think what happens is we misunderstand Gresham's law and we've already heard a narrative of why Bitcoin is good money and, and we want to somehow apply the two to each other. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I don't understand this point. And, uh, and so I'd ask, yeah, Jao, maybe you can um, write something up or, uh, or attach a pointer to it, to the conversation later, uh, like a link. Yeah, well, the, that Gresham says that good money might have an alternate use case. Is you, you, That's not an argument for Bitcoin being good money. It doesn't have an alternate use case. It does, though. Outside of money or within money, do you mean, Joe? No, of course, outside of money. That's okay. the whole point. I, I, don't, I don't think of it as use case. I think of it as property. And in the case, um, like the, the, one of the first properties I would point to is the inability to inflate it, uh, which is, um, and we probably should have talked about this a little bit more earlier in the conversation. You know, um, uh, you know part of the, the whole problem with the Triven paradox is that it involves on one end of a time scale a massive amount of currency inflation. And once everybody else accepts that currency, then they're accepting a game that's being played by the people who control the ability to inflate that currency. And then you have all kinds of manipulation games. And that's what he talks about when he talks about um, you know, the uh, Keynesian theory is, is you are basically inviting a game of manipulation the moment you accept somebody else's currency that way. Whereas, you know, Bitcoin, you know, by protocol uh, doesn't leave that game open, at least in the same way. And I think probably not at all. You're using the word inflation and inflate, but it's quite unclear what definitions you mean. I, I mean, I mean, monetary inflation. I mean, inflation. Why? You know, so Nash addresses, uh, you both know Nash addresses Grisham, and, and he uses the example of, of Byzantine when they, you know, watered down the, started watering down the coinage there. It used to be pure gold. And, um, but, and, and, and in a sense, it, because it was gold, it was a commodity money. And, you know, Bitcoin reflecting data is in itself a commodity money, perhaps. But what many of us, I think, I think a lot of us fall into the old, um, you know, blind man in the elephant uh, analogy here, you know, where everybody's and everybody's trying to find a definition for things. Um, when we when we're what we're not noticing is that we've got this new technology that essentially emulates multiple things at once. It's a software. It's a virtual technology in the sense that in one instance, it could act like a money. In another instance, it could behave like a like a, a commodity. In another instance, it could maybe behave like a security. 
Um, it can do all these things. And so when we run around trying to use these, just these, these models that just, they, they, they were around before, you know, the idea of computers were around. I mean, Bitcoin is more on the level of quantum mechanics and, and wave particle dualities and, and, and things of that nature. And we're all just, you know, we're blind men with elephants. I, I felt guilty to it too. You know, we, we, uh, and we also get misled because it's ultimately virtual reality. You know, it's it's not a real. There's not a real Bitcoin, right? So in this, in that sense, Grisham would say this is utterly ridiculous. So would the Austrians, right? It's it's imaginary in a sense, but yet it is it, it is also not because we've really come into a more fluidic, a more dynamic reality through information technology than than has ever been witnessed in history and i think this is the biggest problem go ahead joe i think that we really need to sort of have me put out my definition of what i believe nash was talking about when he said ideal money because different people in this chat have asserted that it was unclear and not explicitly stated um and a lot of people surrounding the Bitcoin community have tried to say, well, an ideal money has this, an ideal money has that. But the scenario that Nash is talking about is to get everyone on the same pricing system and to have a universal price. And the way we don't have that today is that different currencies are controlled by their um, their local issuers to deal with the local problem. And that fragments the universal pricing system that we could have. Now, the reason it's ideal is because no one can create a single currency that just fixes this problem. Well, my my currency is universal. Well, it doesn't work like that because they all have to adopt it. So you can't you can't design a solution for that. But the what what he uses is asymptotically ideal money, and what that means is we can or might or will or do approach that singularity over time. And so some of the things that we're speaking about talk to that, but some of the things that we're speaking about don't talk to that. And I, like, I would, I would definitely well, argue that specific yeah, well, that, point. That's a good point, but I argue that it does talk to that. Um, and, and one of the reasons too, I, and I, I, I agree with you too, you should, you should, Definitely post a link or you know write a blog about Absolutely. that without. Um, but my argument too is that you know he, he Nash was really kind of defining something we call PPP, which is purchasing price power or purchasing price parity. Whereas if I if I um, am in Hong Kong and I'm trying to sell an ox, right? And if I tell everybody my ox is worth five dollars, right? That may not the, the five dollars doesn't mean the same to you and I, or to the guy in Hong Kong, right? As it does to me, five dollars means a, a something that's completely different, right? So this makes you know what essentially what they call the Big Mac index. This makes it incredibly difficult to to calculate because these are relative values. But the thing is, once you introduce a Bitcoin and you say, okay. My ox is now worth, I want to sell my ox for, you know, 0.3 Bitcoin, right? And that has a universal metric, right, that everybody understands and everybody knows what that means, right? 
then we can begin to arbitrage things. And when we begin to arbitrage things through trade, like you can look around and go, hey, I'm sitting in my room, and over here in Texas, this guy is selling, you know, straws for three cents, and this guy over here is selling them for four. And I can look at that through the Bitcoin metric and know immediately that, that we can equalize, e equalize these things, right? So that eventually everyone pays the same price for things. And this is essentially what, what I, what, um, he's getting at with ideal money. And, you know, you, you think that maybe PPP isn't significant, but it's actually used to calculate the GDP of economies. We're going to, um, and, uh, yeah, we're going to let Matt, uh, have one more quick statement and then we okay. will be wrapping up for today. Yeah, I, I think uh, our perspectives are, are not particularly far apart, uh, except uh, uh, perhaps. Um, you can almost say you're sense. reaching an equilibrium. <laughs> well, I, I, I think um, uh, yeah, yeah, Jal thinks of, of ideal money more as uh, more as a definition. I, I I think that he and I agree where where Nash begins describing the problem. I, I referred to it specifically as talking about the, the Triffin paradox, um, whereas Jal brings in, you know, the idea of a money that's universal that nobody's that's that nobody's manipulating. And I think that Hassan brings in a very relative point about PPP, which you know that that's an aspect of how the system gets warped once you have uh, a you know uh, a nation on one side with its own set of concerns about its own you know price inflation and greasing the wheels of its economy and somebody who's issuing who has a different set of incentives at that point sounds good man so we're going to wrap up for today i want to thank the people that joined us in periscope and also the other people here on the broadcast uh do you guys want to give a shout out each individually go ahead hey thanks guys this was great yeah thanks for inviting me i appreciate it yeah a lot of fun yep yep same here thanks a lot great so that was matt crawford uh hassan miracor if i am saying your name correctly yeah perfect perfect and jowl you know him as Soker Potoshi on Twitter. Uh, we thank you for joining us. Hopefully we can turn this into a semi-regular thing. We don't want to overwhelm you with Nash, but at the same time, uh, I think that there's a I lot do. Of, <laughs> I think there's a lot of valuable discussion and other topics that we can explore through the lens of Nash and his work. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you. Thank you.